Welcome to Thinking Edge with Ed Boudreaux. Today we're here with Dennis Hanno, and he's the president at Beaton College. We couldn't be more grateful you're joining us today. Dennis, thanks so much. Uh, really pleased to be here, Ed. Looking forward to a great conversation about a topic that's near and dear to my heart. Great. Love it. Well, Dennis, would love to hear your, your background. Let's start there. My background. So, uh, you know, if we start backwards, I guess, I've been uh, president here at Wheaton College for, I'm in my seventh year now, which is a, is a good run for a college president, especially in these times. I've enjoyed every minute of it. Wheaton's a small liberal arts uh, college uh, between Boston and Providence, really a tight-knit community of uh, a little under 2,000 students and about 18,000 alumni. Uh, before that, I've had roles at other higher ed institutions and increasing in responsibility at uh, Babson College, well known for entrepreneurship. I was the dean of the undergraduate school and then provost there during my eight-year career. I was at the University of Massachusetts Amherst for quite a while. I was there for 14 years as a faculty member, but served in administrative roles as well, including being the dean of the undergraduate business school there. Uh, I'm an accounting professor by background. That's how I got my uh, start in higher education. I uh, got my PhD at UMass, uh, left for a couple years and taught at Boston College. Uh, and before that was a practicing accountant. Just quickly, you know, why did I end up in accounting? You know, my background is my dad was a, a farmer in upstate New York. My high school and my entire uh, area was not a place that focused a lot on education. You know, we had good schools and and I had a mother who was very focused on education, so she inspired me to continue to pursue my education, even though uh, it wasn't unusual for, for students in my high school not to go on to college of any kind. So, you know, I think that farming background and that environment where I wanted to be safe and secure with my professional career led me to choose accounting, and accounting was great. It was a great tool. And it served me well throughout my time, but I quickly got out of accounting into teaching accounting and then using those skills as, as being in administrative roles. So that's just a quick uh, scan of 65 years of my life, I guess, Ed. So hopefully that gives you a little flavor for where I come from and, and what I've done in my past. Absolutely. That's, that's great. I really love the backwards chronology, you know, of that. And also, you know, I'd love to talk about entrepreneurship and, and innovation I know you're, you think very globally, and I'd love to dig into that as well. There's a lot of people who say, you know, you can't be born an entrepreneur, or that you have to be born an entrepreneur, and that, you know, it's not something that you can learn how to do. I don't think I ever really reflected on entrepreneurship until, you know, about halfway through that journey I described you, but to you. But when I did, I got thinking, gee, my dad was an entrepreneur. I mean, he worked for himself, ran a farm, had to do everything from soup to nuts in terms of running that farm uh, on his own. As soon as I was in college and right after college, I, I got interested in creating some of my own things. I didn't think of it as entrepreneurship. I thought of it as, oh, let's do something different. Let's try to do something that has an impact, including you know, starting a restaurant business and, and actually having my own accounting practice as opposed to working for somebody else. When I started to reflect on that, I thought, first of all, how incredibly rewarding it was to be able to create something on your own. But more importantly, I realized that if I could do it, anybody could do it. 
and that really it just took the motivation and the desire and the and the and the focus on creating that would bring skills to somebody that would be able to make them be an entrepreneur. And I think that's how I, I got started down this path of teaching entrepreneurship, working with students in particular in areas of the world where they probably themselves say, I can't do this on my own. Basically what I do, uh, and I've you know, taught high school students and college students, but a lot of high school students in countries in Africa and beyond through the work that I've done with various projects that we can talk about. And, and my challenge to them is basically, you can do this. You don't need somebody else to do it for you. You can solve problems. And basically drawing on my own experiences say, I have done it and I really don't have that much of a different background than you do. So how can you take the resources that you have, even if they may be scarce, and actually create something that will have an impact on your community? So it's, re it's really been rewarding to work with, you know, I love working with high school students in particular and seeing them kind of awaken to this idea of that they have control and that they actually can create something that will have an impact. That's amazing. I love the, the whole arc in a way, thinking about the attributes around uh, farming, because you're, you're generally in, in scarce resource and figuring out what combinations of things would you know, result in, a, in an outcome or a yield, however you think about that, and then taking that, that learning across your, you know, your career, and then the desire to teach people, right? That I think about it as anything is possible, right? And you know, really conjuring up that, you know, going back to what you said, the, the motivation, the desire, the passion, but I think un unlocking in a way that, hey, you can actually do this, right? Yeah, and it's always, I, I think um, we all know that the biggest impediment to creating something is lack of resources. And I start off by explaining to young people in particular that that's, unfortunately, that's always gonna be an excuse. I mean, I've never had anybody who's come to me and said, gee, I have so many resources, I don't know what to do with them. You know, even the most resourced of organization or individual probably start off by saying, I wish I had more. So if that's the situation, then what you need to do is to figure out how you utilize those resources that you have at your, at your disposal and to do it in a way that's different than what somebody else was thinking about. And that's, that's the link for me between innovation and entrepreneurship is that it's the innovative idea that leads to an entrepreneur to be successful, but it only is successful if you take action on it. And I think we also, many of us uh, know people who are like, well, I've got a great idea. Well, but I, I, don't, you know, I don't know, it's gonna be hard work. I, I don't, I'll let somebody else do it. And so really, I think the, another one of the ingredients to you know, creating an entrepreneurial spirit is saying, just do something. You know, it may not be right, and we know that entrepreneurs fail all the time and that, you know, they don't hit success or the kind of success they want right away. So I think what we really have to do is encourage particularly young people to take that step so that they are gaining the experience. Uh, and it may be something small in their community when they're 16, 18 years old that then leads them to when they're 35 and they have more resources at their disposal to create something that changes an entire country, for example. Yeah, I love that. How do you think, because I, I, I like, love the idea around innovation uh, is, is the idea and, the entrepreneur, and coupling that with uh, the entrepreneur who's actually taking 
action around that, um, creating experience, evolving, changing. I'd like to bring in that concept of, of scarce resource too, and thinking almost like in a, in a startup as well, you're generally fighting for everything. How do you think that scarcity of resource drives innovation where to your point earlier, like if you had everything you know, at your disposal, how, how do you think about that and contrast that? Well, you know, one of the things in, in teaching young people in particular about those scarce resources, uh, I start off by saying, just imagine if we all had all the resources we wanted, how many bad ideas would actually be put into play because everybody would say, oh, what difference does it make? I've got all these resources. So that scarcity of resources is actually a positive in my mind because it, uh, it causes all of us to be more focused on, so what can I really do and and that important question of how, how and who will this have an impact on? And then I, you know, I, pre- I also preface all of this by saying resources will come to good ideas. Uh, and in fact, in the environments where I do a lot of work, my pledge is, since we're not talking about usually major projects here, is that I'll help you with the resources. But you've got to actually really, really convince me that this is going to have an impact. And, and I have a number of times. It's, it's, it's actually rewarding, challenging, but rewarding to see the number of outreach, outreaches I get from some of the students I've worked with. This, this morning, for example, I got a, a LinkedIn connection from a young woman in Rwanda who I recognized as somebody would have been in one of my seminars. She wrote me within about a minute of me accepting her LinkedIn connection and said that she was in the seminar I did in 2017 and she has a business up and running and could use some advice and support. Again, incredibly rewarding that, what's that, almost four years later now, she's still thinking about, and she said, I'm still using the lessons you taught me then, and I'm succeeding and having an impact on her village. Challenging, because I've had so many of those students that hardly a day goes by when I don't get some outreach looking for advice or support of some kind. It's a little bit hard to manage, but this one this morning, for example, I will reach out to her later today and, and reconnect with her because it sounds like she's got a great, uh, a great thing going in her small town in Rwanda. That's awesome. We, we often, I often use the term phantom farming. And phantom farming is exactly as you, you suggest, you know, it's, it's teaching others, it's enabling others such that sometime in the future, adding value to others and, and never looking for credit but that sometime in the future, you'll get that call from Rwanda, that, that person that met you in the seminar, and that business will be up and running. And it's, there couldn't be a more beautiful thing. That's amazing. Yeah, no, it's really inspiring. It, it's actually, you know, kind of the why, you know, why do I keep doing this when I, you know, on some days you kind of think, oh, I could use the time, I could devote my energy in other ways. Then you get something like that and say, oh, wow, this really makes a difference. Oh. Wow. I love that. You reminded, reminded me almost as a, a venture capitalist, you know, convince me it will have an impact. I'd, lo- I'd love to, to dig in a little bit more there in terms of, because sometimes I think folks don't think about, potentially they think about the, you know, the output, but not the outcome. How do you think about impact in the different dimensions of impact? Mm. So, you know, when I think about the way I approach helping others become entrepreneurs, you know, I really do focus in on a couple of fundamental things that I, I think are too often overlooked, and I do think they relate to impact. One is to really know yourself, to, to understand who you are and what's important to you, uh, so that you you can then measure impact in the way you want to measure impact. You know, if impact is 
I, you know, I often talk to young entrepreneurs and say, you know, if your goal is to raise money, to make money, that's okay. But, but know that it, you know, there's other things that are going to have to factor into to making money. You may not be out to save your community or whatever, and, and that's okay. There's a lot of people that have had impact by making a lot of money and coming up with things that have affected uh, all of our lives in positive ways. So know yourself, know what it is that's important to you so that you can measure impact in the way you want to measure it. But then secondly, a key component of that is you have to know your community. And, you know, the number of times I've worked with a young entrepreneur and they tell me they're going to have a, a web business that's going to, you know, have an impact on the world. I kind of say, yeah, let's, let's tone that down a little bit. I said, you know, that would be amazing and maybe someday it will happen. But when you want to start thinking about where you're going to have an impact, narrow in on a defined community where you can understand it really well and you can know what that community needs. That's how you can have the best impact. So the first two parts of kind of the, the rules that I uh, share or the guidelines is to know yourself and to know that community so you can judge impact and the impact and you will know that the impact is going to have uh, really have an effect on those that you're you're targeting with whatever it is that you're that you feel is important. So if your passion, for example, is around education, and everybody in your village is you know a senior citizen, uh, or everybody in your community, you know it's it's you're in the wrong place. So if you're going to try to focus on that, you're going to have to move your community or identify a different a different place where you can have that impact. That's great. You know, I've talked to a lot of VCs in the, in the past. I don't know that I've ever gotten that advice. That's really sage advice. Know yourself, know what, you know, what your passions are, what drives you as a, as a person, know your why, um, and then know the community that, that you're um, serving um, and making sure they're, they're in alignment with, with your passion, what you can actually, um, you know, impact within that community and thinking about it that way is just very, very unique way of looking at, um, um, you know, how to think about the impact that you can have. Well, the combination of those two, I think, you know, sometimes when we think about entrepreneurs and successful entrepreneurs, we envision them as this lone person that, you know, is doing it all on their own. And that's just not true. You may be able to get a, a start that way, but if you're really going to uh, do what you're talking about, which is impact, you really have to connect who you are with that community. And uh, to me, that's, that's moving from being an entrepreneur to an entrepreneurial leader, by the way, uh, is that you really have to uh, gather people around you that share some of your passion and commitment. Uh, and, and that's that community part of it. Not only do you then satisfy a need of the community, but you also get others to join you. Uh, and you, know, you can take a small idea and all of a sudden pretty soon, it becomes a big project that has a lot of engagement and really starts to grow and have an even larger impact. So I, I just think those two, know yourself, know your community, drive all of the success that you have as an entrepreneur and an entrepreneurial leader. It's a great distinction, you know, almost starting with innovation, the idea, moving to an entrepreneur, but then moving into an, uh, a leader position such that you're growing and, and can scale around com common passions. Yeah. You know, and, and that, you know, this know yourself, know your community, you know, you mentioned starts with an idea. How can you have a good idea if you don't know yourself and you know, you don't know your community? I mean, you, you could have ideas are everywhere. I start off by describing, you know, the students I work with. However, you really, 
you know, I, I can give you a good idea, but if it means nothing to you and you're in a community where it's not going to have any impact or no one else is going to be interested in it. So the idea itself has to be generated from this understanding of, of your values, your skills, and then what your community needs are and what they're going to buy into that you might create. That's great. Dennis, I'd love to switch gears here a little bit. Clearly over the past several months, we've seen tremendous change in, in industries, but I think EDU or education specifically, love to get your uh, high level thoughts um, around what change the world is going under and how, how that could impact um, education moving forward. Oh, it's a great question. That is actually something that, um, you know, we've seen even before the pandemic, but it's the pandemic has really accelerated, I would, I would say. And, and I don't think that coming out of the pandemic, it's all of a sudden just going to go kind of go back to the old way, basically. The forces on higher education uh, were very strong and ominous even before the pandemic, you know, a declining college age population, uh, technology providing lots of different ways for people to learn uh, that we hadn't had in the past, people questioning, you know, whether you need a college degree uh, to go into every you know, profession out there. What I think the way it's been accelerated is, is that uh, it, and it gets back to some of these fundamental, fundamental ideas around innovation and entrepreneurship we've been talking about is if you're just going to keep doing things the same old way, when everything is changing around you, it, you're going to have a hard time navigating that changing environment. So here at my own institution at Wheaton, uh, you know, I like to say for 185 years, we've been teaching courses exactly the same way, a small class environment, face-to-face, -face, sitting around a conference table, having great conversations. That's great. And a lot of people want that, but all of a sudden we can't do that the same way that we used to. So we've had to be nimble and recreate that environment in a remote situation. Uh, you know, we've never had an academic semester where we've had students taking our courses that were not physically right here on campus. And right now we literally have, uh, we have 450 students who are remote, literally all around the world taking our courses. And we had to quickly adjust and adapt and figure out how we could integrate them into the same small college environment that we really want to try to, to replicate. And, you know, I mean, there's all kinds of uses of technology, for example, and we see, you know, large organizations popping up and providing, you know, literally hundreds of thousands of, of people with access to online learning. That's never going to be who we are. So we know ourselves. We know that community of students who are interested in uh, the kind of Wheaton experience we have. And then we try to figure out how can we come up with a different idea, a different approach to being able to deliver that to them? And, you know, I'm not going to sit here and say, oh, it's, you know, early November and everybody is so happy and, you know, it's been a smooth transition. We have transitioned and we do have a very different model than what we had for those first 185 years. And I think lastly, I'd say is that there's a, a real awakening within the community of like, oh, this is different, but it's not necessarily bad. So what can we do leveraging what we've learned to be able to take some different forms of action going forward? And to me, that's what, you know, higher education, I, to be honest, it's, it's been quite easy to just say, oh, we'll just do the same thing we did last year. I mean, I recently described to a group that, you know, I've been on college campuses for 35 straight small fall semesters, and every one of them was pretty much exactly the same. This one is not. And as a result, 
none going forward will be as well, is that we will figure out, we have to figure out, we have figured out, but we have to continue to adjust how we can create opportunities for remote learners to be engaged, how we can do things with students to give them experiences that are different than normally sending them off to study abroad or internships or things. Higher ed institutions that don't confront that reality, who are hoping that, oh, it'll just go away and it'll get back to normal, are going to have a difficult time uh, succeeding. That's, that's great. I, I think it, it's really, you know, to your original thought around, you know, th this inspires change and change inspires ideas that turn into innovation, that entrepreneurs or entrepreneurial leaders like yourself, you're in a great position to, you know, for this change management that we have, have coming across, you know, not all, only education, but all industries, mm -hmm. you know, healthcare is seeing tremendous change. Every industry is seeing this change and in, in how, how quickly can you adapt um, is probably the secret. It is. It absolutely is. And, you know, and one of the things we talked about before, it always comes down to the resource question. I mean, again, I get it all the time in my day to day. It's like, well, we don't have the resources to make those changes. And my response is, if we don't identify or earmark those resources, then we aren't going to be here for long. And the only people who can decide on how you use your resources are, are you. Yes, you know, resources are always constrained, but we've got to figure out a way to dedicate some resources to development. Uh, and if we don't make that difficult choice of setting aside some resources for, um, for the long term, if you're mired in that, you know, oh, we'll just pay the bills and keep going day to day, you're not going to be around for very long, and especially in this environment. Oh, that's amazing. Well said. Dennis, I'd love to, to wrap uh, and also ask you, what would the three pieces of advice that you'd give, you know, aspiring entrepreneurs, uh, entrepreneurial leaders, um, uh, what are the three pieces of advice that you'd give them? Yeah. So, you know, I, um, early on, I, I sat down and I uh, worked with a group of people to develop a, a real kind of a guidebook called From Ideas to Action. And, that, and this is a, a workbook that we distribute widely, freely, and it's available online. And we, from that, um, it really forced me to kind of sit and, and think about what those key pieces of advice are. There's a longer list, but I'll I'll highlight, uh, there's about seven or eight that, at the end of, uh, of the workbook and that what we do when we have seminars around this that we highlight. I've already touched on two of them, quite honestly. And one is, I just can't imagine making any progress without understanding who you are and what your values and, and what your skills and your priorities really are. And, and I, what I have found, and, and I'm guilty of it, none of us take enough time to really set aside and take a look at, at you know, who we are, you know, it's just, we get too busy. So I think we have to set aside the time to really be introspective and reflect on what's important to us. So number one, know yourself. Number two, that know your community. And, you know, that manifests itself in all different kinds of ways. Like if you're a marketing person, you know that knowing your community means, well, we need to do some market research and figure out what they want. But, it, you know, I think all of us, if, if you're really interested in being innovative and being entrepreneurial, you have to, I think the most important skill is listening. Too often, you know, we talk, 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 or we, you know, we might do surveys or whatever. But I think if you just sit back and, and listen and hear what people are talking about, what they're interested in, you're going to start to map your skills, your passions to that community. 
And I think the, the listening part, you know, think about, again, many entrepreneurs are these bold, visionary individuals who like to tell you the way things are. I think they need to stop and listen so that they can change their own views and adapt uh, to what the community needs. And then the third thing is something we haven't talked about, but you know, I think it's implicit in, um, in everything we have discussed is that this is extremely hard work. I mean, if you're interested in, in being an entrepreneurial leader, it's not easy. You know, again, it's back to if it was easy, everybody would do it, right? So what is the thing that helps you get past it not being easy? To me, there's a, a leadership principle that I've read a lot about, and it's uh, one of the highlights of it is to encourage the heart. I view that as one of the key principles of uh, being an effective leader because, first of all, you need to encourage your own heart. You need to make sure that you're staying balanced and focused on the things that are important to you. And even when tough things um, pop up is to kind of remember the long-term focus, the vision of where you're trying to head and that there will be bumps along the way. So one is encouraging uh, the heart for yourself, but the second part of that is encouraging the heart of others. And as a, as a leader, I think you always have to take time, especially in, in times like this pandemic that we're experiencing, to remind people that, you know, of what the priorities need to be. It's not just work, 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 let's get this done. You know, one of the things I shared with our faculty and staff early on uh, when this was all happening is you're not working from home. You're living in a pandemic and you're doing the best you can and you're trying to get some work done while you're home. This is not about, you know, all of a sudden your office has shifted from being here on campus to, uh-oh, my office is now at home. No, you live at home. Get what you can done. Be focused on yourself. Be focused on your family. And, and to me, reminding people of, you know, what those personal values are and why any of us do the things that we do is all about encouraging the heart, both individually and for others. So, you know, again, know yourself, know that community encourage the heart, yours and those who are part of the journey with you. Dennis, what a great way to, to end, you know, the Thinking Edge podcast. Um, and I, I love the commentary around the heart because it starts with, with deep empathy, right? Deep empathy for yourself, your team, your community. And uh, we rarely hear that from, from leaders. So I especially appreciate that, that last comment. So thank you so much. Well, and these the last few months have certainly highlighted it. We all have difficult decisions to make in, in, in organizations. You know, here we've tried, we've, we've continued. I just wrote an email to the community again, coming back to health and safety as the priority. And we've been fortunate not having to really lay anybody off at this point. Uh, and that hasn't come without sacrifice in other ways by everybody involved. But it's, it's I think, just keeping that focus on uh, the collective um, you know, the collective well-being and, and, and supporting each other. Well said, Dennis. We appreciate you as a, a leader of, of Wheaton, but a leader in the, the world as well. And, and your, your sage advice and, and thoughts are, are going to go a long way. So thank you. It's a, a real pleasure to connect with you through this. I, ho I hope we can stay in touch. You know, I obviously looked at some of the things you're doing. It's great, Ed. And I, I'm thrilled and honored that you thought of me to be part of this. Glad to help in any way I can. Thanks so much, Dennis.